Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. (laughs) Or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. Hello, hello, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemisphere film review podcast. With me, Dan, ready to tackle all my New Year's resolutions, only to know that they will fall by the wayside in a month in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, already winning at Veganuary because I'm already vegan in Cambridge, UK. Ah, yes. Uh, In this podcast, we discuss lesser-known fantastical films, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, because New Year's are for starting afresh in your creepy, dead aunt's haunted house, decapitating and burying otherworldly monsters, and dealing with (laughs) Vietnam PTSD by battling a terrifying, decomposing skeleton war veteran. (laughs) Conrad! (laughs) How are you today? I'm very well, yes. I'm just back from my second viewing of Sam Mendes' 1917. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And it was good? It was good. It's so good. Now, I was very pleased to discover that it's not just one of these flash-in-the-pan experiential cinema things where you go and see it once and then afterwards it's you know not the same again. It's uh-huh. such a moving, lyrical, breathtaking beautifully shot and beautifully performed movie. I really hope it wins Best Film at the Oscars, but I'm not sure whether it will. There are a lot of very good contenders this year. Mm, Yeah, a contender I saw recently was Jojo Rabbit, which is Ah. the most hilarious film, as as well as being very touching and heartfelt uh, at the same time. It's such a strange film to describe to people, but yeah, I I suggest Mm. everyone go watch it. Yeah, it takes quite a turn in the middle, and it's a testament to Taika Waititi's skill as a storyteller Mm. that he can incorporate all of the comedy and the more serious elements and still make a lovely movie. It's, Mm. It's quite a thing. Yeah. And that last scene... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure whether we're, we're talking about the same one, but yeah, there's one hilarious last scene, yeah. sort of penultimate scene that is, yeah, I quote it every day now. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> yeah, and we've had a lot of fun recently in podcasting because we got to be the guests on somebody else's show for the very first time. Mm, I know. We were on uh, the Australian movie podcast Spit and Polish, which was loads of fun discussing the Aussie film The Loved Ones. Yes, 2009 horror film directed by Sean Byrne. And we were talking about that with Ryan and Bartek of Spit and Polish. And it was great fun. So do check that out and check out all of their other episodes while you're there because 
they talk about horror movies, and they're a lot of fun. Actually, I think they cover a huge range of movies, not just horror. Ah. So, yes, a impressive back catalogue of episodes to check out. Mm, definitely. Uh, Conrad, any mailbag today? We did, yes. We got some feedback on Ewoks, The Battle for Endor. Yes. Uh, John Cribbs said to us, it's an honest compliment to say Mandalorian reminds me of Ewoks, The Battle for Endor. I legit enjoy Star Wars spin-offs, which is probably why I liked Rogue One so much. Mm, I enjoyed Rogue One as well. It's a really good yeah. standalone movie to chuck on uh, without having to sit it through is, like yeah. six other movies or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was kind of hoping they'd do more of those, but I think the solo prequel kind of derailed them a bit so mm. i'm not sure what they'll do next now yeah and on reddit we've just recently joined reddit so you can follow us on there as well if you like i asked a question about whether the battle for endor is sort of a dry run for willow and ej griffin said to us both willow and a new hope are directly based on joseph campbell's hero's story that the Ewok movies would also use the same pattern, being George Lucas's work should surprise no one, which is, oh. I guess, a very good point. Wow. I, did, I was not aware of that. Yeah. And finally, RJ Loco said, Wilford Brimley and Val Kilmer are basically twins. A <laughs> <laughs> <That> spitting image. <laughs> yeah. And the new year has brought on some new patrons. It has, yes. Welcome to all of our new patrons. We love having you on board supporting us. It means a great deal to us. So hello to Deezer Gale, Keith Murray and Scott Howard who have joined us. Yes. Thank Yay, you. <laughs> welcome. Enjoy all of that good stuff. Yes. Uh, so what movie are we going to be covering today, Conrad? Oof, good question. Let me just amble over to that oubliette and find out. Okay. Oh, the stairs have gone. I'll have to use this rope. <laughs> okay, be careful. Oh. Watch out for that giant bat. God, it's got a shotgun. Whoa. Oh. Yeah. oh, you're pissing me off, Roger. Gosh, that was a close one. Yeah, a bit surreal. <laughs> I managed to grab a film from its talons. Oh, yes. And it is House, the 1986 American comedy horror film directed by Steve Miner and starring William Catt, George Wendt, Richard Mole and Kay Lenz. Mm. Steve Miner, we've covered previously on H20, Halloween 20 years later. Yeah, that's true. I'd forgotten about that. Is he our first return director? No, we've done a few Joe Dantes, haven't we? Yes, Joe Dantes, always our favourite. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, he's in the oubliette a lot, bless him. <laughs> <laughs> so what is House about, Conrad? So House, as I mentioned, stars William Catt, Carrie's prom date, no less, as Roger Cobb, a writer in Vietnam vet, recently separated from his TV soap star wife, Roger moves into his aunt's house to focus on writing his war memoirs, but the house has lots of bad memories for him. His son, Jim 
Jimmy disappeared there whilst swimming in the pool and his aunt hung herself in one of the bedrooms. It's a great choice of location for someone suffering PTSD to live alone. <laughs> Pretty soon, strange things start to happen and Roger has to recruit the help of his nosy neighbour, Norm, from Cheers to do battle with stuffed and mounted fish, baby-stealing dwarves, a bloated witch version of his ex-wife and the rotting corpse of his war buddy, Big Ben. Will Roger defeat the Nam flashbacks in his closet? Will he be able to rescue his son from the other dimension he's discovered in his bathroom cabinet? Find out. Whoa. <laughs> and I think we will have a avid fan of this film joining us after the break. We will. <laughs> And we're back. Our guest today is a senior research fellow at Birmingham City University, a talented musician, one half of the songwriting team's Soda Jerker, and co-host of their wildly successful podcast, interviewing the likes of Alicia Keys, Sting, and Sir Paul McCartney on the art of songwriting. And he also literally wrote the book on the film we're about to discuss. <laughs> I am thrilled to welcome to the pod, Dr. Simon Barber. Hey! <laughs> Hi, guys. Welcome, welcome. Welcome. It's really exciting for me to speak to you because I should say for total transparency for our listeners that we have actually known each other for quite a while, although we've never actually conversed <laughs> <laughs> yeah one of those bizarre internet friendships that lasted 20 years without a single word in person <laughs> <laughs> oh those things. yeah <laughs> so fingers crossed this goes well <laughs> we're a little bit used to that kind of thing because dan and i have only actually physically met once yes yeah right. that's true yes <laughs> so the film we're discussing today is the 1986 comedy horror film house directed by steve minor and one of the reasons i was really excited to have simon come and talk with us about this is as I said in the intro, he literally wrote the book on it, the Arrowed Video Deluxe box set of all the house movies, which was released in the UK and the US, I believe, comes with an extraordinary hardback book with almost 150 pages of Simon's writing on the franchise, oh, wow. which is pretty incredible. Could you tell us a little bit about how this came about? Um, I think, well, originally I made a website about House when I was younger. Um, I'd seen the film probably on VHS, and uh, I'd, at one point I wanted to teach myself how to make websites, so I thought, well, I'll make one about this film, which I enjoyed so much as a youngster. And um, through making that, I got to know some of the people who were involved in the film and gathered together a whole bunch of resources uh, around it, you know, like screenplays and, and information about merchandise and props and things like that. And um, I guess the people from Arrow found that website and thought, well, this guy seems like he might be the authority on this film. So they contacted me and asked me to be involved. Wow. <laughs> so it must have been a dream come true to spend so much time writing about House in such great detail. It was really, yeah. Um, I was sort of familiar with the rest of the films in the series uh, particularly the second part but it was nice to get a chance to delve into the third and fourth installments as well yeah. which were um, lesser films shall we say <laughs> yeah and not as widely seen i don't think no not at all um, but yeah i think i wrote it over a christmas break ironically enough a couple of years ago so <laughs> cool. uh, yeah i just sort of feverishly wrote 
about 30,000 words on, on house. <laughs> wow. Well, it's pretty exhaustive. So when it came to researching this, I just thought to myself, why am I bothering? It's just all here. <laughs> um, we'll just invite Simon and ask you to tell us all about this movie. So Dan, you'd never seen this before, am I right? No, this is the first time viewing. I'd never seen it. I haven't seen any of the sequels. So yeah, I, I completely blank slate, didn't have a clue what I was expecting, and I was a bit confused right. by the movie. <laughs> okay. I, I was a bit confused. Uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll just start off by the tone of the movie. It is a horror comedy, mm-hmm. but it seems very imbalanced to me. Like there were bits that were just almost slapstick, and then other bits that were I guess supposed to be terrifying, but because of the imbalance, I felt just confused. I didn't know what I was experiencing. <laughs> yeah, it's quite unique in that respect. I mean, you, horror comedy really came into its own in the 80s, I think, with famous examples like Ghostbusters and American Werewolf in London. But this one really is in a class of its own because whereas those examples sort of take creaky old gothic horror genres and bring them into the 80s and sort of play them as fish-out-of-water comedies with all of the tropes of those genres sort of feeling a little bit silly in the modern setting. They still created sort of a a self-contained reality within the story themselves. They didn't wink at the camera too much. Whereas House, I think, is very much aware that it has an audience and that it's playing to an audience. I don't know. What do you think, Simon? Um, I don't know, really. I I guess I was young enough when I saw it to not really understand any of that aspect of it. Mm. So really, I was just kind of enthralled by the story. Yeah. And and I agree, it does come out of that tradition of sort of early 80s horror comedy. Um, Sean S. Cunningham, who produced the film, he... Uh, in the 70s, had um, produced Last House on the Left, mm. Wes Craven's right. film. Um, he'd also um, sort of been involved with Friday the 13th, which he produced and directed. Mm. So I think he he was coming out of um, the sort of the end of the sort of slasher cycle, if you like, and realised that there was a, a burgeoning market for films like Creepshow and American Werewolf in London and Ghostbusters and that maybe he should get on board with that style of film. I guess there's a sense in which it may be winking at the camera slightly just because mm-hmm. of their awareness that this is that they're trying to meld two genres here and do it successfully. I think they did do it quite successfully because obviously I fell in love with this film a long time ago. It's hard for me to be as objective maybe as someone who comes to it just now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also part of the sort of haunted house tradition as well. You know, there were lots of movies like Amateurville and The Changeling and others, uh, Poltergeist that had come out just before that, which sort of maybe um, reconstituted the haunted house as something that maybe was worth revisiting as well. Yeah. Mm. Kim Newman actually complains about that aspect of it when he writes about house. He finds that it's symptomatic of a problem in the 80s that ghosts weren't scary enough for the 80s because of the strong slasher tradition and the graphic deaths and goriness and all of the makeup effects that audiences were expecting at the time. That just the uncanny and creepy sort of stuff that you got in the haunting and so on wasn't good enough and so they sort of ramped up the rubbery horror while at the same time house is sort of well he calls it safe and unthreatening so while it's upping the ante with the physical gore effects it's also not all that scary so it doesn't really satisfy either camp so kim newman hates it which really surprised me (laughs) 
It did get some good reviews at the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I would kind of agree a little bit because the monsters in this, they're not ghosts, they're entities, like demons, I guess. But they're verging on Tim Burton-style demons. And so it was just kooky <laughs> whenever they appeared and not that scary, apart from the last Big Ben zombie I didn't find that scary. And also the voice that they put on was just like a sped up voice that was just <laughs> hilarious. And even the when um, Roger manages to behead the creature, there's no sound effect, there's no blood. I, I don't know. I almost wanted a little bit more gore. It wasn't clear who the audience was. Was it children or was it adults? Because I felt it wasn't gory enough to be for adults and it wasn't kooky enough to be for kids. It was, I don't know, I did find it quite imbalanced. And I would also like to point out, I don't know having a guy as a main character was beneficial. I felt like if it was a female character or a child, I would have felt there were more stakes in terms of the film because I didn't feel threatened. Mm. Well, first of all, in terms of the audience, I think... um it's interesting that you say you're not sure who it was made for because it did find an audience and, and quite a large audience. You know, I mean, the film was made for $3 million and it grossed $19 million wow. domestically. So it was a hit. Uh-huh. You know, it was a number one hit at the time when it came out. So I think it did find its audience and people were interested in this sort of wacky adventure. As for Roger being the protagonist and being an adult male, I think that lends itself to the main conceit of the story, which is this idea that he's a Vietnam veteran and that he's got these skeletons in his closet, so to speak, that he needs to (laughs) deal with. I don't think you would have been able to realise any of that depth if you didn't have that character being the age that he was and the position in life that he was. Sure. Um, So I think it, it works in that sense. Whether or not you feel truly threatened when watching the film or you get a sense of the sort of dread or not, um, I guess it's up to your kind of suspension of disbelief when watching it. I always found it quite effective, really. The idea that the house, um, and this is something that's somewhat underplayed in the film, that the house itself is the thing that manifests your fears. Mm-hmm. So the, the set of things that happen to Roger are different to what would happen if you went into the house, for instance, It's the house that is the evil entity and the house that uses your greatest fears against you. Mm -hmm. And so that's why his son has gone missing. That's why it's dredging up all this stuff from the past, from the war. And I think that's quite an effective concept, really. Mm -hmm. That and and some of the things that happen um, in the house, such as his uh, son appearing at the window in a sort of, uh, which he's able to sort of switch off with the remote control. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the other child who he's looking after for a night uh, disappearing up a chimney and things like that. Some of those things I think are really effectively done and quite inexpensively done. You know, a film that is shot for $3 million has to do things quite creatively. And, you know, they made a lot of monsters for that money. Mm. And I think did some pretty striking things. The, the other thing that I love about the film is the fact that it's essentially a one-man, one-location premise, but it goes far beyond that by using these sort of dimensions beyond the house. You know, he goes through the bathroom cabinet and into this sort of netherworld beyond. <laughs> and I think that that really um, opens the movie up and makes it more exciting. And they managed to do those effects really well as well. Like for instance, Roger being lowered into this vast sort of inky black darkness that's basically William Cat on a rope on a soundstage. Ah. It's inexpensive to do, but it actually looks good and works really well, I think. So, yeah, I mean, for the resources they had to hand, I think this is a pretty 
interesting example of a sort of 80s haunted house horror comedy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that scene with him being lowered into the hole, I, I'm a big fan of being lowered into the abyss. In all those sort of 80s movies, like even like Bill and Ted, when they're falling to hell yeah. and it's just endless falling. I love that stuff. <laughs> This movie is quite inventive in terms of the way that it works with the 80s trope of the Vietnam veteran having Nam flashbacks, that he actually has Vietnam in his closet, I think is pretty literal, but it, it means that you get some fairly visually inventive sequences. And the other thing that I really like about it is that there are rules in the house. You know, his son's trapped in a dimension in the bathroom cabinet and the war demon only comes out of the closet at midnight and <laughs> this kind of thing. But it's never explained to you. You're just left to sort of pick these things up as a viewer while you're watching it. Yeah. I mean, I'd felt like things were just happening and, yeah, they weren't really explained. And lots of moments where, um, Simon, you mentioned it, where he turns off his son with his remote <laughs> or that his neighbour meets him for the first time and just happens to have his novel in his back pocket in pieces for some reason. <laughs> even even um, his neighbour, the hot woman, that just drops by and just drops his son off. Yeah. What? <laughs> it does stretch logic somewhat that this woman will be willing to drop off her kid at someone's house when their own kid had gone missing in a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and certainly in what is now the 2020s, it doesn't play quite as well that a woman would drop off her son to a strange single man living in his aunt's house where his son disappeared <laughs> and even gives him a rubber ducky. So she's inviting him to strip her son naked and then goes out on the town. <laughs> it's not great parenting, is different it? Times, Conrad, different times, Conrad, different times. Yeah, very different times, clearly. But it is quite a fun sequence, him with this proxy for his missing son, trying to rescue him from those funny ghoulish children that turn up that are very Tim Burton-esque, actually. Although I, it sort of stretches credibility that he's being dragged up through the chimney by these monsters and Roger is hanging off of his legs and, and he's not screaming and he doesn't dislocate anything. It's pretty amazing. I understand that toddlers are pretty hardy, but I'm not sure they're that hardy. <laughs> Well, I think all of that stuff, um, as you mentioned earlier, with the uh, the shears cutting off the head of the uh, Sandy Witch, as she's called, they're <laughs> treading the fine line there between horror and comedy, aren't they? They're trying not to make things too gruesome, and they're trying to make things amusing. It's like the scene where Roger is trying to bury the parts of that witch in the garden, and he's speaking to Tanya, the neighbour, and <laughs> you know he's he's trying to kind of make himself appealing at the same time while he's beating this monster with a shovel and, and trying to stop it from grabbing his ankles. <laughs> mm. That's how the comedy works in this film i think it's that constant tension which i think is you know it's pretty effective even now i don't know i think for me the acting kind of let it down a little bit like i felt like if there was a stronger actor playing roger it would have been a bit more effectively conveyed i just felt he he just seemed very blank a lot of the time or just surprised and or not surprised just a whole bunch of very very terrifying things are happening and he dresses up like a vietnam guy and runs down the stairs and does a like a knee slide on his porch i don't know it was just, it's <laughs> really out of place he's a soldier that's how he deals with things <laughs> yeah that's true I, actually I, I like the way he kind of does practically deal with the things that you know he comes across in the 
house. He's not willing to engage with them as tricks, really. That's why he sort of turns off the image of his son with the remote control. It's like him saying, I'm not going to engage with this. And and uh-huh. his responses are quite practical. You know, it's like the witch gets cut into pieces, so he has to actually get garbage bags and find a way to bury it. Or um, there's a, a monster in the closet, so he rents a truck full of video cameras. Yeah. You know, he, he has quite practical responses to it. It's not just, uh, you know, magic and horror. Yeah, when he does the video camera thing, it's like, yeah, that's what I would do. Mm. I would set up 20 video cameras. <laughs> I, I did like some of the sort of body horror creature designs, though. They were very 80s, like just faces and fleshy mouths and tentacles and that sort of stuff but it's yeah such an 80s thing that does kind of stand the test of time yeah love that stuff and the creatures are uh, you know thematically related to the film as well like the war demon which is the name of the closet monster that um conrad mentioned mm-hmm. it's literally you know the tortured faces of people from vietnam <laughs> emerging from his closet and the fingers are made from bullets <laughs> and you know it's trying to represent the sort of tortured past coming into the present, which I think is quite good. Right. I didn't realise that. Yeah, the one thing I was confused with was the Sandy Witch, because it's certainly the way that when he's chopping her up and burying her, we suddenly get this pop music montage with with the song, (laughs) you're no good, you're no good, baby, you're no good. And it feels almost like this uh, hag of a wife revenge fantasy. (laughs) And yet his actual relationship with Sandy is much more mature and complex than that. You know, they're they're divorced and they're grieving over their missing son. So it doesn't feel as though he hates her or he demonises her necessarily. Yeah, I guess that is a weakness of the film, that they go down that route, because as you say, it seems like they're basically um, trying to embody the sort of demon X, Mm. which I think is a shame, because as you say, you know, when they speak to each other on the phone earlier in the film, you can see that they still have a connection, and and that's borne out at the end of the film as well. So um, it's a shame that she sort of manifests in that way. But I think... Maybe it was just another excuse for a, a nice-looking monster. And, <laughs> you know, they had that nifty idea of the sort of accidental shooting situation where the cops come to the house. Maybe it was just some way of realising that idea. Yeah. I mean, I was struck by... I read the article that you referenced, uh, you gave a link to in your footnotes, because uh, being the academic that you are, your book has footnotes, which I really <laughs> love. There's a, a reference there to an article by Dan Gorman who talks about the film in terms of it being a demonstration of Roger Cobb's rejection of masculinity as a path to happiness. I'm not sure I'm entirely sold on this. <laughs> but one thing it does point out that I do like is that the film doesn't end with him being victorious and getting the girl. He and Sandy don't kiss at the end of the movie. They smile, they share in their joy for the return of their son. Spoilers. Mm. But there's just a sense that they're friends and that they share a responsibility for this child. Mm. But they're not going to get back together necessarily, Mm. which I quite like. No, I agree. I think that's a a nice take on the film. And, And as you say, there are some mature aspects to it, certainly in the relationship between Roger and Sandy. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. So what do we think of the NAM flashbacks, the typical 80s NAM flashbacks? 
These ones, not the most convincing, I would say. Yeah, the scenes that are shot in, in what is supposedly Vietnam were done on a soundstage next door to the interiors of the house. So you can very much tell that we're not really in the jungle. <laughs> but, you know, it's got fairly compelling performances. The ensemble of actors that they've got there are, you know, people like Dwyer Brown and um, William Catt and Richard Mall, obviously, who is, uh, you know, the Big Ben character. They're all um, accomplished actors. A lot of these actors came from TV, really. Um, William Catt obviously had been in Carrie, um, but he was also had, had quite some success with Greatest American Hero on TV. Mm. Um, George Went obviously was famous from Cheers. Um, Kay Lenz had been in um, Rich Man, Poor Man. Richard Moore was famous for being on Night Court for many years. Mm. So I think the ensemble was supported by people who had a lot of experience making things. At probably at fairly low budgets in, in fairly short timescales. Sure. Yeah. I did find the Vietnam scenes a bit of a letdown. I guess it's just budget. The sets obviously looked indoors. I also liked how Big Ben is just like your stereotypical macho war guy. He's <laughs> <laughs> got like a like a Rambo headband and like two strings of bullets just <laughs> crisscrossed over his chest and stuff. It's and holding like the biggest gun they could find. Um, it's hilarious. But I guess I don't know. I I felt like it was almost too tropey, too stereotyped, and I couldn't get invested in these Vietnam flashbacks because they just looked like clichés to be. Yeah. I mean there've been lots of fairly harrowing depictions of Vietnam in the 80s. It would seem to be a preoccupation just because that was the time when various people who participated in it became writers and filmmakers and there was a rich vein of material to work from mm. and again this one roger is dealing with the fact that due to his failure to mercy kill ben he was dragged off and tortured and that's the reason why his son the house has stolen his son it's quite a safe way to deal with the idea of ptsd threatening your family mm. and how he locks himself in the house and works his way through it and then is able to sort of salvage some of it mm. but not all of it so it's it's sort of doing a lot, but it's doing it in a fairly fun and unthreatening way. Mm. Absolutely, mm. yeah. And I think um, what you've identified there is is all the little pieces that came from the original story. I don't know if you know, but um, the concept for House came from Fred Decker, mm. uh, the filmmaker behind uh, The Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps. Ah. Um, he had a couple of different ideas, actually. Um, Ethan Wiley wrote the screenplay for House. Um, they were both at UCLA together alongside a whole bunch of other people who went on to have success in the industry. They formed a sort of uh, community around the film and theatre and television departments. Um, they had um, Greg Wyden, who wrote Highlander, David Arnott, who did Last Action Hero, Shane Black, who did the Lethal Weapon movies. Oh, wow. A whole bunch of people, basically. <laughs> um, Fred had started working on a 3D Godzilla film with Steve Miner. Wow. And Ethan had gone off to work at uh, Industrial Light and Magic, he was a special effects guy, basically, and he was making Ewok feet on Return of the Jedi. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so they were they were very connected to this sort of community around UCLA. At times, they they lived together in this house, which they referred to as the Pad O Guys, um, which was a sort of a very gendered <laughs> way of thinking about it. But um, 
Ethan went off to work on Return of the Jedi, and then he met Chris Waylas, who um, was the special effects guy who went on to do Gremlins. Mm. So Ethan spent a couple of years working on Gremlins, puppeteering uh, Gizmo and and other creatures. (laughs) Um, And meanwhile, Fred uh, was working on this Godzilla movie. And Fred had this concept for making a very sort of dark, bleak, probably black and white, William Friedkin-style haunted house movie. Um, He wanted a guy to go into a house and have 90 minutes of the scariest stuff he could think of. And then at the end of the movie, this guy would come out, and and that would be his movie, which he called House. And he also had a a short, which he was doing as part of sort of a Twilight Zone-style anthology film um, with his friends, with Ethan and others. Um, And he had this idea of a Vietnam vet who had killed his friend in the war in order to avoid their location being revealed and now was talking to a therapist and was um, being visited by visions of his dead war buddy and um, so eventually Fred combined these ideas you know the sort of tortured Vietnam vet goes into the house um, and he thought right I've got a real strong concept there but because he was working on this Godzilla movie he never really had the time to write the screenplay so Ethan said I'll write the screenplay he took a crack at it and returned with a film that was actually quite different in tone. Mm. So Ethan introduced the comedy, the sort of Mad Magazine-style rubber monsters, and all of those other aspects of his personality that he kind of imprinted on the story. And that took Fred by surprise. (laughs) I don't think they were. There was some, some tension there for a little while, but Fred later said that he felt that that combination of his sort of solid story structure and Ethan's more colourful hijinks is what actually made the film so successful and so appealing mm. but um yeah all of those elements that you're picking out so it's really all emerged from the origin story of house if you like how it came together from those guys and, and those two personalities connecting wow yeah i mean it kind of makes sense to me because it did feel like a combination of two different types of films yeah like a very dark comedy with a scary haunted house so that makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah, And that's, I guess, why it was so appealing um, to Steve Miner, who was working with Fred at the time. He wanted to direct it, so he passed it to Sean S. Cunningham. And as we mentioned earlier, Sean was just in that mode of trying to take advantage of the sort of emerging horror comedy boom. And so he found the financing, and I think six months later they were shooting. Right. So it, it was uh, very, very fast. And right out of the gate, both those guys had a huge success with that. Yeah, right. and you can right. see it's sort of a transitionary film for both of them because I think both of them were sort of getting tired of Friday the 13th at this point and thinking we need to branch out into other things. And so this is a bridge to them doing comedy and more serious fare maybe for Steve Miner, who directed, I think, two of the Friday the 13th movies. Is that right? That's right, yeah. He did parts two and three. Yeah. You don't want to be pigeonholed just doing that for the rest of your life. And, of course, he has gone on to do quite a wide variety of things since then. So in much the same way that it's sort of a transitionary film for them, it's also talked of as being a gateway film for kids who want to get into horror or, Mm. you know, what horror film can I show my kids that will introduce them to the sort of concepts but won't scare the crap out of them? This one is often cited as a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the second film performed that function for some people as well. Some of the House fans that I've known actually saw House 2, the second story, first, (laughs) which is a great name for a movie. (laughs) But uh, yeah, that film veers much more into the sort of fantasy elements and much less into the horror realm. So I think um, that film opened up, you know, a lot of 
people's sort of uh, first experiences of the genre. Mm, right. Yeah. I mean, I almost felt like I wanted more of the going into the cupboard scenes because I found those much more compelling than these pseudo Vietnam flashbacks. And yeah, when he gets lowered into the abyss, it started getting really interesting, but that was like an hour into the film or something or more than that. So I don't know. I did want more cupboard stuff. (laughs) (laughs) More of him dealing with his trauma. I think House is more influential than people may realise because when you look at something like Evil Dead 2, which people tend to think of as just being, oh, it's the comedy Three Stooges remake of Evil Dead. It's the funny version of the original. Mm. But when you watch House and remember that House precedes Evil Dead 2, it almost feels as though it influenced it because the idea of one guy locked in a house being assaulted by various Muppety special effects. I mean, it feels very familiar. Mm. And Evil Dead couldn't even sustain it over a whole movie. It sort of does it for the first act and then introduces a whole new bunch of characters. Whereas this one actually does lock one guy in a house and just watch him go steadily more crazy. (laughs) Yeah, when you put it like that, it does seem like an influential film in terms of like going down that kind of kooky route. Because I think of movies like Brain Dead um, or Dead Alive in America, mm. a Peter Jackson movie. But that came out in the 90s, so almost seven years after this film. So um, you could be right there. Yeah, I think they did a good job on the marketing for House. They had some very memorable taglines. Mm. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Ding Dong, You're Dead. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was horror has found a new home on on the UK poster that I had, but um, Mm. enter at your own risk was one. Um, Yeah, there were several. And, you know, as you say, I think that that, because of its success and the fact that it did gross quite a lot of money, I think it made its way into a lot of people's other works, you know. Mm. I mean, it was it was the highest grossing film in the history of New World Pictures at that point. Wow. And remained so for the whole of that year until I think Soul Man came out. Do if you remember that movie, uh-huh. see Thomas Howell doing blackface. Not exactly the most politically <laughs> correct. <laughs> but that was also directed by Steve Miner and, and that eclipsed it in terms of uh, box office, I believe. But oh, wow. yeah, it was uh, a really successful film and certainly as an independent, one of the most successful of that period. Mm. Oh. Yeah, one of those comedies like Overboard that you look back on and think, oh, actually, this isn't appropriate at all. <laughs> right. I've still got a bit of a soft spot for Overboard. Though. I know. <laughs> I know. I love it because I think, you know, I'm aware of Kurt Russell and Goldie Horn's relationship outside the film. It kind of feels like consensual role play. Yeah. So I kind of I sort of feel like it's okay to still enjoy it on that basis, but I'm sure it's not. <laughs> now it's time for random trivia. Okay, normally I do trivia, but Conrad, you have some trivia today. What have you retrieved from the endless abyss? Yeah. Well, one thing that I noticed was the the name Roger Cobb as a character name was very familiar to me. And then I suddenly remembered that it's also the name of Steve Martin's lawyer character in the body swap comedy All of Me, which was released two years before in 1984. Oh, right. (laughs) There are two Roger Cobbs out there, which is really odd. Ah, okay. (laughs) Weird crossover. I don't know if it was a reference or just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. I thought that was odd. I always found the coincidence (laughs) that Michael Myers, the serial killer from Halloween, was the same name as Mike Myers, the comedy actor. So... (laughs) 
Yeah, I think they tried to get him to cameo in H2O, didn't they? And he he said no. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our trivia. Yeah. Simon, you are a musician, so and the music in this film I felt was almost Danny Elfman-esque, like almost Mickey Mousing, like every movement, but it just got too much sometimes. I felt like I just wanted just a little breather of no jangly music and, and just let the scene unfold. What do you think, Simon? Oh, I always love the score, actually. That was one of the first things that drew me into the film because the film opens with those sort of almost like a negative shot of the details of the house, that sort of Victorian mm. gingerbread that that's all over the house. And um, you get that really menacing sort of cello sound. Mm. Um, and then throughout the score, as it develops, you get more and more electronics. Certainly when Roger's in the sort of never world, you're getting a lot of uh, strange synthesizer sounds and things like that. Yeah, a lot of beep boop beep boop <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's punctuated at times um, by those pop songs that Conrad mentioned. You've got You're No Good, and um, this is dedicated to the one I love, which... I think we're quite well, mainly in the sense that they're sort of timeless 60s numbers, so it doesn't really date itself to the 80s. It's not mm. like you're getting um, some poison or, you know, some other kind of hair rock right in the middle of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, that scene where the sandy monster gets beheaded and it starts to do, 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 with those 80s toms, it's like, oh, no, it's the 80s. <laughs> You've got to celebrate Roger's victory somehow, though, haven't you? <laughs> But yeah, Harry Manfredini, I thought, did a great job on that. He also went on to score the other house movies in the series. And he, of course, had done Friday the 13th too. I think he was the right choice for that film. Yeah, the thing I like about it is that I don't tend to like Henry Manfredini's scores to the Friday the 13th movies because I find them quite brash and too present and fairly jagged and obviously recorded with orchestral resources, which is nice for a film of the period on that budget, but very limited resources. So it's overdubbed brass in a very dry environment with a massive 80s reverb slapped on it. I've always not liked that very much. Whereas this leans more into the synthesizer, but with solo acoustic elements like the cello added on top and it's not quite as brash and intrusive. I mean there are particular moments I really like. One of the ones is when Roger turns on a lamp in the room when he's going to investigate the closet and as soon as he switches the lamp on there's these high tremolo strings that start and it builds and builds and builds to him opening the closet and nothing happens Hmm. and then he closes it and then there's complete silence until the war demon bursts through and surprises you and then he lets all hell loose and I just thought that was really specific and deliberate scoring that sort of builds tension and then surprises you later on I really liked it Hmm. I found some of the scenes just a little bit too on the nose, though, like when Roger and I think Harold is there and they're about to open the closet and just uh, military music because, you know, he's all in the get up and uh, I don't know. I think I just have an aversion to if you see someone in military uniform, you have to have snare drums. Like, why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you look at it as a bridging horror movie for kids, then maybe it makes sense to have much more deliberate music and the scenes like that. Yeah. But I think it's still like in that example where it builds suspense to a scene that doesn't do anything and then surprises you with silence when something does happen. 
I think it's not necessarily making the environment safe for you. It's not telegraphing everything, which I quite like. In fact, it sort of established a soundtrack trope that I became overly familiar with so that in later movies, if music was playing up to a suspense point, I knew nothing was going to happen. So I just relaxed. Sure. And then as soon as the score stopped, I thought, OK, put your tea down. Something's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this film doesn't... Ha- I mean, apart from that one, scene there isn't really any jump scares at all which i just find highly irritating i was expecting that mirror jump scare i was Mm -hmm. expecting open the the medicine cupboard close it and then something scary behind him but it didn't happen and it yeah and he does that three times so i thought oh this must be the time but no nothing so (laughs) that's how it plays with your expectations yeah yeah i have to admit though when i was sort of 12 years old watching this and the bullet rolls off the table and kay lens crouches down to pick it up and then stands back up as the witch i did leap across the room i have to admit oh yeah yeah that was unexpected that's true yeah it was it comes in broad daylight which is another thing that's interesting about this movie it's not sort of a dark and stormy night ever most of it seems to happen in broad daylight and i was even amazed with the opening which is this incredibly complex single take shot of prowling around the house and then introducing the delivery boy and then watching him go up to the house and then pulling back to settle on an establishing shot of the whole house. It's very ambitious for a film of the time with the technology they had and with the budget and the time that they had available. But it's not a dark and stormy night. It's broad daylight, which is quite unusual. Yeah, I'd probably um, because of the area in which I mean, they, they shot in Monrovia, California, which is quite a pretty sunny mm. place. So I suspect that making best use of the budget and time that they had, they couldn't really wait to shoot at night, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> but um, they make great use of the, of the house itself. I mean, it, it comes off really well in the film. Yeah, I visited the house. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the current owners were kind enough to show me around, so I got to, oh, to wow. walk around on the sort of peaks of the uh, the roofs outside and all of that upstairs, and it was great. And we went up into the loft. They had a sort of a little cinema set up, and they put House on. Oh. So I've, I've actually watched House in the house from no. House. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, wow. Did anything happen while you were there? Or? <laughs> no. Did you go into the closet? <laughs> <laughs> well, the current owners are, are sort of big um, TV and movie fans, so they had uh, little displays of things set up, props they collected, and ah. uh, things from other TV shows they were fans of and that sort of thing. So it was it was really nice, actually. But getting to walk around that space that you mentioned from the opening of the film, the garden, and alongside the house and out through that path that Roger walks down and it's fascinating to see even all these years later it still looks pretty much the same and uh, it was it was great you could see how they made best use of it in the film i think yeah the house looks incredible though it's everything you want from a haunted house yeah any shot with their house in it is scary yeah it's it is foreboding and they are a great production designer as well greg fonseca who went on to do wayne's world and honey i shrunk the kids and all kinds of other movies Mm. um, did a great job i thought um the interiors 
were built especially wide so that they could get cameras down the hallways and get some of those shots oh. of Roger Sanna creeping down hallways and stuff. And mm. yeah, it looks great. It really does. Yeah. But there are other sort of visually arresting aspects of the film as well, like the uh, paintings that adorn the walls, I think are quite striking. Yeah. And they add quite a lot to the film. Yeah, because you see them throughout the film, but you don't understand them until you actually see those visuals mm. come to life and you see axes flying across a room and then you see the painting with the axes. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. Yeah, mm. I actually own that painting, believe it or not. No, really, wow. <laughs> the exact one that hung on the wall. Yeah, really. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, many years ago when I was in my house phase, I looked up the artist Richard Hescox, who did. He's a great fantasy artist, very celebrated fantasy artist, um, and he happened to have that painting for sale on his website or something. So. I bought it off him years ago. No it wasn't even very expensive. I guess it's worth a lot more now because it's an original Richard Hescox painting. But uh, wow. yeah, I've still got it. Wow. wow. You must be the number one house fan. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. It's embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the main painting, that one with the grandfather clock and, mm. and that you see focused on was done by William Stout, who's another very celebrated artist. But he was working in the same studio with Richard Hescox at the time. And Steve Miner, they were working together uh, and, and Miner were working on that Godzilla project. So uh, William Stout was hired to do the film, but then because of his uh, schedule, he actually passed on most of the paintings to Richard Hescox. So oh. the ones that you see in the hallway and the one that's in the background with the video cameras, uh-huh. that's a picture of um, the director Joe Dante being speared by a giant marlin fish. What? <laughs> um, <laughs> if you look closely, you'll see that. Um, oh, that's but amazing. yeah, those things around were done by Richard Hescox. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. And we haven't talked about the animated Marlin on the wall, which is another really odd thing that happens in the film. Yeah, another one of those what the fuck is going on in this movie moments for me. I think that was Ethan's idea. He said that his father was a fisherman and he thought that would be a great idea for the fish to come to life, Uh, which is kind of, I mean, I don't think I've seen it in any other films, put it that way. No, <laughs> never seen it. Not such a big fish as well. Yeah, uh, I did like the detail with the eyeballs as well because that made it way more creepy. Yeah, <laughs> there are so many wacky touches in this movie that I really like. Like um, the actress who plays Aunt Elizabeth, Susan French, who kind of had this weird renaissance late in her life appearing in genre movies because I know her most for playing the elderly version of Jane Seymour in Somewhere in Time. Right, And apparently she was in Jaws 2 and... And flatliners as well. But she does a really good job playing Aunt Elizabeth in this movie. I love the shot where um, she's behind the police officers and yeah. uh, Roger is trying to explain that his son's gone missing in the swimming pool and she just does this bizarre manic grin. Oh, <laughs> so, it's so disturbing. Yeah, I don't know, she's trying to be a welcoming host or, you know, it's just another day in the house for her, so it's just fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I like the idea of the aunt, though, um, and the way that she presages what's to come you know she warns roger she says you know it was the house and the house tricked me and that sort of clues roger in for what he might be able to expect Mm. um which i think works quite well and of course there's some good comedy that runs around aunt elizabeth as well when he meets harold for the first time harold (laughs) says the woman who lived here was nuts you know just a senile old hag yeah roger says she was my aunt and he says she's heart of gold though (laughs) (laughs) she was beautiful for her age yeah Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards! 
that's awards season, and I'm sure you're all hanging by a thin rope in the eternal black abyss with excitement for our awards segment where we nominate a bunch of our favourite mirror-shattering parts of the film in a number of family-reuniting categories. Best quote! Okay, well there's a few quotable lines in the film, but I'll go with... The scene where Roger is in the kitchen with Harold. Harold likes to bring over midnight snacks and things, doesn't he? And uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't quite believe that Roger's had this encounter with this creature in the closet. And Roger just pulls up his shirt to reveal the scratches on his chest and says, Does this look like imagination? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, mine would have to be actually from the TV show within the film that Roger's wife Sandy is appearing in, which is just this terrible, terrible soap opera. And at one point she's (laughs) having an argument with an ex-lover or something, and she comes out with the wonderful line, I'll smell whatever I damn well please without your help. (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) But being a television actress herself, she really commits to being as cheesy as possible in these scenes. So believable. Yeah. (laughs) Dan, how about you? Uh, mine's such a tiny quote, but it's at the start where the delivery boy is investigating the house to deliver whatever he's delivering to the aunt. And he just says, it's me, grocery boy. (laughs) (laughs) Who would say that? (laughs) Grocery boy. That's how you know me, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that's what he's credited as too, which is great. Most 80s moment. I think the most 80s moment has to be Roger's sweater. Roger's V. (laughs) Roger's V next sweater. Deep V, yeah, deep V. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's almost down to the navel. It's pretty amazing. I know. What gets me is right after that, he introduces this wonderful piece of wardrobe to us. An extra from Olivia Newton-John's physical video comes running by jogging, which is Tanya, with her Ah. sort of shiny spandex and headband and white belt. It's just amazing. It's just like all the 80s in one scene. Well, for me, the most 80s thing in this movie is definitely the character with Vietnam flashbacks. It seems to be happening practically Uh, in every movie. So you have First Blood and Blue Thunder and Clint Eastwood in Firefox. Everybody just seemed to be having Nam flashbacks. Even Magnum P.I., I think, Tom Selleck had Nam flashbacks in that series. Is uh, Jacob's Ladder, is that Nam flashbacks? It, yeah, it is, arguably, but it's 1990, so it's just kind of edging out of the 80s. But, right. yeah. Best hair or costume? Well, there's some interesting costumes, isn't there? Certainly um, Big Ben's sort of military outfit later on. That's interesting. I'd go with the Sandy Witch in her lovely purple dress. <laughs> she, she doesn't wear it quite as well as Kate Lenz, but um, yeah, it, it looks great. <laughs> she fills it out, I guess you could take oh, that. Oh, yeah, definitely fills it out. <laughs> and Dan? Uh, I mean, I've already mentioned mine, Big Ben in his Rambo attire. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what those bones could be that he has in a cross on his helmet because they can't be human bones. So is it chickens or something? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) How does that make him look tougher as a warrior with a couple of chicken bones on his helmet? (laughs) 
How about you, Conrad? Yeah, I think Simon's already touched on it. I don't think you can beat Roger's beige V-neck. It's just, it's just legendary. It's, mm. it's <laughs> definitely the most memorable piece of costume from this movie, without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Favourite scene? Well, I guess it's got to be either his exchange with Harold about Aunt Elizabeth... <laughs> or, or probably the the raccoon scene with the goggles. The, 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 those are two scenes that just work in any context, I think. So, yeah, I'll go with the, the comedic turns from George Went. Mm. <laughs> How about you, Dan? Best choice. Uh, I mean, Conrad, you probably already know. It's it's Roger being lowered into the abyss. I, I'm just a big fan of... <laughs> Lowering into the abyss, into the unknown. Uh, and I love how there's this kind of scully bat thing that attacks him and steals his shotgun. And then he does this shotgun flick trick and flicks it around and shoots the rope just perfectly. It's a bizarre scene, but I, I love it nonetheless. Yeah, and thinking about the skull face bat thing is another thing that crops up in Evil Dead 2 as well. So it's. Ah. Evil Dead 2 is a complete ripoff of this movie I'm <laughs> discovering when I think about it. I mean, for me, I think it's the whole scene with Robert, Tanya's kid that's been inadvisably dropped off at Roger's house for an evening. Just the whole thing with him running around with the Sandy Witch's dismembered hand crawling up his back. And yeah, I thought that was a great comedy sequence. In terms of really simple effects, that that dismembered hand is it's amazing. How it moves around and stuff, it's, it's gross. <laughs> yeah. One of the effects guys, uh, Shannon Shea, um, he was responsible for the scene where the hand gets flushed and is spinning around. Oh, and he yeah. was beneath the toilet on a, a sawhorse spinning around, pulling that as it was flushed. <laughs> really? Which is, uh, yeah, terrific. Another sort of low-budget effect that just looks great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most cliched horror moment. The film strives to avoid cliché mostly. You know, the, some of the things that happen, the soldier at the door and the strange creatures, they're not particularly typical of most horror movies. I suppose the most typical things would be things like doors slamming mm. or the, the child's toy creakily rolling out on its own into the floor, those sorts of things. You've, you've seen those in yeah. films like The Changeling and other films. Yeah, I think, yeah, the child's toy rolling out into the hallway, I think, is a, is a classic. It's even in The Shining, mm -hmm. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah. reinvented in the Conjuring series as well. Oh, gosh, yeah, it has. Yeah, it's so true. many toys. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Dan? Um, I don't know whether it's a horror cliche, but every time a character touches or holds something that's potentially very sharp, like, let's say, a set of shark jaws on the wall, they always cut themselves, and it's always on the finger. I don't know, it's, it's just like, be careful, people. Be careful. <laughs> that's true, actually. I hadn't thought about that. No, mine is far more prosaic. It's just the um, low-angle tracking shots looking up at the house to establish each scene. I just thought, <laughs> oh, here we go with another scene. And you can tell that they just sort of rolled the camera from left to right and right to left and thought, yep, we can reuse that dozens of times. <laughs> yeah, crops yeah. up in the movie quite a few times. <laughs> Favourite special effect? Well, I guess the, the triumph of the movie is the climax of, of Big Ben returning and looking as sort of rotten as he does. The way that that character is um, actually embodied by the actor, um, who I believe was Steve Miner's tennis coach, um, was the only person <laughs> oh, wow. I could find thin enough to actually fit in that costume. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was quite difficult to get into, apparently, and, and 
he had to wear a, a sort of a milky eye contact lens or whatever, you know, and it was it was pretty rough on the skin. But yeah, the way that that character works and the way the arms are long and sort of hang and the way they do the voiceover and, and the sort of quite humorous way in which Ben talks to him, I think it, all of that works really well. So that's probably my, my favourite effect in the film. Yeah, that's mine as well. Very menacing though, you know, that's the sort of thing that will give kids nightmares if you saw it as a kid. Definitely. Yeah, he seems to have crawled straight out of an EC comic, doesn't he? He he really does have that sort of green, sinewy decay about him. It's it's really good. It's really well done. I also liked how he still talked and looked like he was talking Mm. whereas you know the skull character from the Ewoks movie we just reviewed was not the same sort of (laughs) (laughs) scariness no well I have to say I was a bit disappointed when I watched the beautifully remastered Blu-ray that you can see the actor's real mouth and teeth behind the makeup (laughs) mouth and teeth you can see yeah. him talking inside, and oh, I, <laughs> I hate that. That's one of the downsides of 4K Blu-ray. remasters yeah. of these things that you remember watching on murky VHS over and over again in the 80s. Is that all of a sudden in Labyrinth, for example, you can see all the strings, and it's just it's so <laughs> yeah, sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found the same thing with Back to the Future when I got that in HD and could suddenly see all the aging makeup at the start, which previously I had been unaware of on VHS, you know. Right, yes. Mm. Best sound effect! It was such a tiny sound effect, but it was when Roger shoots the marlin on the wall, the come-to-life giant fish on the wall, and it, it gives this kind of dolphin whine, like a... It's kind of sad. It's hilarious. Because, <laughs> I mean, that animal wouldn't make a noise, so they had to come up with something, I guess. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Simon? Oh, I'll go with the uh, voice of the Sandy Witch, <laughs> which <laughs> oh, I know yeah. Dan mentioned before that he didn't like, but I think that's just great that they, they you know, pitch shift that up so high and she's saying, Where's your son, Roger? (laughs) That's great. I love that. I mean, for comedy, it definitely works. Definitely. For me, I think it's the stereotypical jungle monkey sound that you get for all of the Vietnam flashbacks. Just because Dan has schooled me on this, that it isn't even a monkey. The noise you're hearing is actually a bird. It's a laughing kookaburra which is native of eastern australia and not native to vietnam at all (laughs) but we've heard it in every single tarzan movie and everything ever since so we just kind of accept it yeah it's that tropical sound that no one knows where it comes from except for australians (laughs) (laughs) yeah most funniest scene probably um harold talking about aunt elizabeth saying you know Mm. Not surprised if someone just got fed up and after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to be introduced to your neighbour, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dan, how about you? It was such a tiny moment, but it's when the, I think it's like the real estate agent or, or the property <laughs> uh, guy is showing around the house to Roger and he's just holding the harpoon gun and he just shoots it. <laughs> it just lands inches away from Roger and he doesn't even blink an eye and it's just it's like a bizarre <laughs> scene that could have been fatal that they don't even, they just brush over. But <laughs> He just says, oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's nothing. Yeah. And you, Conrad? 
Uh, for me, it's <laughs> being a dog owner. It's just the moment when the dog digs up the sandy witch's dismembered hand and is just oh, sat there yes. with it. <laughs> and Roger is trying to get him to stay and to drop and he, it doesn't work and he runs off with it. I just relate to that so much. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> okay, and that's our Mooblies. Okay, listeners, we are back for the final verdict. Should House be pulled out of the closet and set free to steal all your children and put them in the closet? (laughs) Or should it be thrown into the oubliette to be lost forever? Uh, I guess back into the closet. (laughs) Uh, Simon, what's your final verdict for this film? I have a sneaky suspicion that it's uh, positive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's going to be no surprise. I'm a big fan of this movie, so um, I think it should be freed from the oubliette for future generations to enjoy. I think it's just a great creative example of a horror comedy movie of that period. It's got all kinds of weird and unusual and striking things in it. I think they did a great job with the money that they had to spend And so I think uh, it's well worth anyone checking this out as a kind of gateway movie to the horror genre. Mm -hmm. Well, I had never seen this film. Uh, It's the first time. And I'm going to smash all of your dreams and say, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know whether this movie worked for me. I felt like it was imbalanced. I felt like the acting was very subpar. And... Yeah, I, I think it's, it might be an influential film. I think it was trying to do something, but I'm not sure that it was executed as well as it could have been. I, I feel like I had all the ingredients for something really good, but it just didn't quite make it for me. And maybe I, I'm not suffering from the nostalgia effect because this is the first time I've seen it. I would throw this back in because, yeah, I don't <gasps> think it, it doesn't do it for me. doesn't quite do it for me. Conrad. Deciding wow. vote. Wow. Leaves me with the deciding vote. Oh, no. And the first time that I've spoken to Simon live as well. <laughs> no pressure. Never again. No. No. <laughs> well, I, I have to say that it's a very odd film. It's tonally quite mixed. And it is a very safe, non-threatening horror movie, as Kim Newman suggests. But I actually think that it fits into a tradition from the 80s of horror comedies that that are more of a romp like Ghostbusters. And I have very fond memories of watching this one on VHS myself as a kid of the 80s. And I think underneath it, if I can go for a horrible pun, I think House has a really strong foundation of Fred Decker's initial idea behind it, the, the Vietnam vet locked in the house going steadily crazy. And it's interesting that I've discovered while doing this that Evil Dead 2 is essentially borrowing a lot of material from House. Uh-huh. And the thing that always bugged me about Evil Dead 2 is that I kind of wanted Bruce Campbell to just go bonkers for 90 minutes and that doesn't happen. Uh-huh. And whereas in this movie, William Cat does go bonkers for 90 minutes and it gets all kinds of crazy shit, but it's always with its tongue in its cheek. It's always got great comedy bits like George Went showing up and being hilarious. It's just a fun movie. So, yeah, I think I would save it too and not 
just because I'm trying to <laughs> trying to pander to Simon or, <laughs> or anything like that. I just really enjoy it. And I think if people haven't come across this one because it isn't as famous as other 80s franchises, I think they should check it out because it's a fun time. Oh. Right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Outvoted. Yeah. Off you go, house. In the free. It looks like we can continue to have another 20 years of our friendship, Conrad. <laughs> okay, brilliant. That's a relief. <laughs> Albeit remotely. <laughs> Albeit remotely, yeah. So, Simon, it has been amazing to talk to you for the first time and to have you on the show to share your amazing, incredible, slightly worrying fascination <laughs> with House. <laughs> I think everybody has benefited from your deep, deep knowledge. Where can people follow you online and benefit from your wisdom in other areas? Um, well, you can find me on um, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Simon Barber, pretty much everywhere. SimonBarber.com is the website that lists most things I'm involved with i think the main project that i'm engaged with is the soda jerker podcast so if you have any interest in songwriting or listening to how people approach the creative process in that sense then um, check out sodajerker.com and subscribe mm. to that yes people really should have you ever been starstruck by any of your guests on the podcast um, well, yeah, I mean, it's not hard to be starstruck when you get to sit down with someone like Paul Simon or Paul McCartney or yeah. Alicia Keys, you know, these are really very familiar people that we've sort of listened to and known their work for a lot of years. And so, yeah, sitting down with them is, is crazy, but quite quickly you get over that and, you know, you've got a job to do and you start asking the questions and you realise, oh, they're just people, you know. They're just yeah. uh, extraordinarily sure. talented at what they do. Extraordinarily is the key word, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even Sir Paul McCartney, that must have been quite a moment for you. It was, it certainly was. It took us a lot of years to get in that room with him. Getting to interview a Beatle is no small task, but yeah, he was mm. lovely. He was absolutely lovely to us. You know, he, he puts people at their ease. I think, you know, he knows <laughs> what it's like to meet a Beatle, I suppose. And um, <laughs> yeah, we walked in and he said, oh, do you want a sandwich, lads? I've got some food here. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah, he put us at our ease immediately. He was great. So listeners, please check out Simon's podcast, Soda Jigger. It's such a huge back catalogue of episodes to binge on. And uh, Conrad, we have a bit of a back catalogue ourselves, but if you want to keep up with our future episodes, you can follow us on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. And you can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you would like to join Deezer, Keith, and Scott and become patrons, Ooh. please go over to Patreon. For as little as a dollar, you can suggest movies for future episodes and for five dollars yes. you get access to loads of bonus content including exclusive never before released sections of us discussing things with our special guests mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and if you have some more spare time you can also check us out guesting on the spit and polish podcast Fun times. Yes, it was. And fun times ahead for us, Conrad. What are we doing next episode? Well, we're going to be stepping into the world of foreign language films for the very first time. Oh, yes. Because next time we'll be looking at the 2004 Thai supernatural horror film... Shutter. Oh, 
this has a bit of a reputation. Mm, it does. As yeah. being one of the scariest movies out there. So, uh, a little bit terrified, but looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, it's also been remade three times in three different <laughs> languages. So, yeah, pretty impressive. Wow, cool. And thanks, Simon, for joining us with all your inside knowledge about House. It has been uh, mm. much more rewarding than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys, for having me, and see you again. Thanks for coming. Bye for now, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> It's going to trick you too, Roger. This house knows everything about you. Leave while you can.